I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the CollectingCars.com podcast with Chris Harris and Edward Lovett. Hello and welcome to another Collecting Cars podcast. I haven't done one for a while, but this is a special treat for you all. We have with us Robert Reed, co-driver to the late Richard Burns. Yes, there's a connection here because we do have a stunning Subaru that these two um, crewed uh, to victory in the 2000 Rally GB. So that's the hook in. Uh, Robert is a world champion co-driver. There aren't many of those in the UK. Um, so Robert, welcome to you. Um, first of all, Tell us about your memories of this car, because the way in which it was purchased, I think, is odd. Yeah, thanks, Chris, and hello, everyone. Yeah, it was um, a bit weird, because I can't remember if we were told before the event, or maybe on the last day of the event, that the car had been bought by somebody. And and that in itself wouldn't be unusual, because X-Works cars did get bought, and, you know, whatever. But the weird thing this time was that we were to leave everything in the car. So the mobile phone, you know, Rich's gloves, the headsets, but they wanted the paperwork. They wanted road books, pace notes, um, everything, basically as the car finished the last stage of the event. So as we went over the finish ramp, having won the rally, picked the trophies up, went back to the hotel, the car went onto a trailer and was driven off to its new owner. Do you think it's a bit mission impossible, isn't it? It's a bit leave all your belongings here. This message will self-destruct in. Um, but I, but I, I totally see the appeal now. I really do. Let's talk through that event then. So 2000, and we've got this this new car, um, which I think, I hope people will agree, is for me the best-looking Subaru rally car. It's got that wide-body 22B road car, arches, the short wheelbase. It's a two-door. It's a stunning-looking machine. And, and it's, its arrival in 2000 wasn't normal, was it? 
No, it, it wasn't. I mean, we traditionally, we had a new car each year. But what they did with the 99 car was they carried it over, did the first three events in 2000, the 99 car. So the last event that uh, we did, we retired the car, as it were, from active service by winning Safari Rally. Um, so that was you know great to be able to do that. And then it was on to Portugal, which was the debut of the new car. But what we did is we we arrived in Portugal and there's a 99 car and the new 2000 car sat there. Christian Lorio was the, the, the designer, chief engineer at the time. And Christian had been involved in the previous cars, but um, this was the first one that he had design control over. So it was his baby and he decided to go flat bottom, um, all the weight down low, so really good weight distribution. So we did a couple of runs on the test road with the 99 car, just to, to set a base time. And using a laptop spec on the new car, we then set off for a benchmark, five kilometer piece of road, five keys up, five keys back, strict instructions from Christian, one run, just do one run come back, I want to hear what you say about it. Um, so we set off up the road, and as we got to the top of the road, I was reading the pace notes as normal, and as we cross our finish timing point, um, I turned to Richard and say that was 2 minutes 48, or whatever the time was. And he said to me, I remember it distinctly, he said, you're not often wrong, but I don't agree with that time. Because it was literally a second a kilometre faster than the, the, the 99 car. So we handbraked it around, back down the bottom, and literally as we're crossing the finish point, he says, time. So I gave him the time, and he said, you weren't wrong. It is fast. Handbraked it round to go back up the hill, and I said, no, we've, we've just to do one run. He said, no, but I can't work out why it's so fast. I need more time to work out before I go back and try and explain to Christian and the guys why this car is so fast. So we went up the top. We must have sat there for 10 minutes and Christian's on the radio. What's wrong? What's wrong? Have you crashed? Has it broken down? Big drama. You know, what's wrong with the car? No, no, don't worry. We'll be there soon. And we got back down and had this big, long debate and discussion and feedback um, with the engineers just as to why it was such a superb car and why it was a big step up from the 99 car. And of course, to those that don't follow rallying that closely, a second a kilometre is a bit like finding more than a second a lap on a racetrack. I mean, it's a it's a huge margin, isn't it? Well, if you think in those days, a world rally, I mean, they're 300 kilometres today. They were probably 450 kilometres in those, in those days. So, you know, 450 seconds, I mean, you, you'd be winning by minutes. So it's, yeah, it was a huge amount. I mean, if you found something on a test that was a tenth or two tenths a, a second a kilometre quicker, that was significant. So was it Christian Lorio's first complete rally car then? Yeah, I think it was from memory. I mean, it, you know, Christian was our, was our rally engineer when we did British Championship in 93. So, I mean, he'd been with ProDrive a long time. We we left and come back to ProDrive, and you know by that time Christian was designing the cars. But he he was 
you know, really anal about his his ideas. He wanted the weight down low. So, for example, a map light that was maybe 50 grams in weight, normally it would be high up on the, the B pillar shining down over, over my shoulder. Now it had to be down near the seat mountings and curved up and shining down onto the pace notes. And I was only allowed to have it in the car if there were dark stages, whereas previously it was in the car all the time. You know, that's 50 grams. Um, but that was just the, the ethos behind it, that everything had to be perfect. And, you know, sometimes we, we had some dramas. We we retired in um, in Cyprus Rally, really, really hot event, because the car got so hot that the prop shaft broke. Um, and, and this is because it's a flat bottom car. So, you, you know, the, everything yeah. was rolled down, the exhaust high up in the tunnel. I mean, you know, you could literally fry an egg on the, on the inside of the tunnel um, because everything got so hot. I mean, you know, you, you'd get the um, rubber on the soles of your boot would start melting nearest the tunnel. And I remember having to move my feet about because it was you know, my feet were getting so hot. So there was some, you know, sort of comfort compromises, but there is no doubt, you know, the car was the first of its type. And then Christian went on to uh, work at Ford with Malcolm Wilson. And the O3 focus was Christian's kind of equivalent of the 2000 Subaru. So that was the, the, the first focus that he had complete design control over with very little carryover parts. And everything was low down and it was just exactly the same kind of ethos. So the, the, the first few rallies for, for the 2000 car were successful, weren't they? Yeah, so we we won in Portugal. It was a hard-fought win. So we went with a car we knew was fast. Um, we did two and a half stages with no power steering, got into service. And, I mean, you know, Richard was like Popeye at that point. His arms all pumped up. So they changed the power steering pump, uh, and we went out to do four more stages. He reversed back off the mat, and there was no power steering. So the pump they'd fitted didn't work as well. And and I believe the guy who rebuilt the pumps then had to do a day at Myra uh, driving a car as penance <laughs> so he would understand how how brutal it is to drive one of these things. And that's that's on tarmac around Myra, you know, when you're on rough Portuguese gra- gravel with bump steer and all sorts going on. So I mean, we got we got back. So we were in the lead. We lost the lead. Uh, we got back into service with no power steering, and Richard had bruises on his arms. You know that was how hard it was just to just to to drive the car. And then we got back in the lead again, and then we did some stages at dusk, running second or third on the road wherever we were. And it was really dusty, and we lost the lead. And then we came to the last day. We caught it up. And we had, I think it was something like one nine-kilometer stage to do, and we were still five seconds behind. So we went into the last, the last stage of the rally in second. Um, I remember uh, Dr. The, the team principal, team owner, um, Dr. Was in the middle of the stage, stood on a wrecked van at the side of the road with a timing board, so that we would know if we were up or down. 
Um, and, you know, even by halfway, we were up. So that, that was good. And we came out, we won the event. Um, Christian was in tears. You know, his baby had won first time out. And I wonder, we- just to stop you there, I wonder how many times a clean sheet design has won on its first outing. Not many. Probably not many, no. No. And we then went on, we were on Pirelli tyres, which were, you know, a, a, a well-known disadvantage on tarmac rallies compared with Michelin in, in that era. And we finished second in Spain, the next event, tarmac rally. So, you know, that was considered almost a win. And yep. then we went on and we won Argentina. So the first um, three events for that car were two wins in the second. So then you turn up to Rally GB. Richard's already, you know, he's known to be a British gravel specialist. You've got the Christian Laurier Design Subaru. The country, for some reason, is still Subaru mad. Um, either that or Mitsubishi, but it was always a bit more Subaru because they officially imported them whereas Mitsubishi's were coming through the back door as grey imports. So there you are. You're in the pound seats. Tell us what happens. Yeah, we. it wasn't quite the perfect start because we had... Um, had a couple of DNFs um, where we didn't finish, no points. One in Cyprus with the prop shaft. And in Finland, we um, actually crashed when when we finished the state. So, and we'd gone into the lead. So we're fighting with Marcus and we crash over after we finished this stage and we're upside down the trees and I'm radioing Crikey, our engineer, Simon Cole, um, saying, that's it, we've crashed, we're out of the event. And he said, yeah, I've got your time, very good, you're in the lead now, you know, give us a shout when you're 5Ks down the road. It's like, no, 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 we are crashed, upside down, in the trees, out of the rally. Yeah, 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 just give me a shout 5Ks down the road. No, sir, <laughs> don't understand. So eventually they got the message but it was a tightening right-hander and the flying finish was just at the start of it, the corner. And of course we came in and went off on the outside. And so that was a bit of a problem. So we'd lost a lot of points. We were, had a mathematical chance of winning GB in 2000, but Marcus just had to finish third. I think it was. So he was playing the numbers game. We were going flat out First stage of Rally GB, we hit something with a with a left rear, I think it was one of the rear corners. Knock all the uh, track out, so um, we had a bit of a fight back from that. Went on, set some storming times, won the event. You know, really good performance, um, but didn't. Well, we did all we could do, but Marcus did what he needed to do, and he he finished ahead of us in the championship. So that was us runner-up in the championship for the second year running, which was really quite galling because, you know, you've worked your pan in, you've done what you can, and yet it, it is not good enough. But then the next year we were in a reverse situation and it played to our favour. So it's just kind of how it goes sometimes. And that car rolled away from that event and was stuck in a trailer and was never seen again until now, really. I just find it remarkable. That's not the case with many other competition cars. No, and I think it's it's really good. I mean, I understand it's had a bit of a mechanical refresh, 
but you know, body work wise, it's not had paint. I mean, literally, no. I've had Rally GB mud on it for a number of years. I think you maybe put some some fresh Welsh mud on it recently. Well, it wasn't it wasn't actually me that was driving it, Sam. I did the voiceover, but I didn't actually get to drive the flipping thing. Right. So look, oh. that that that's the story of the car. Um, but let's let's talk about. We always talk about the driver, not the co-driver. So, Robert Reed, where did you start out? I Wikipedia'd you, which is dangerous because people do that to me and get all sorts of weird information. And uh, says says that you did your first event in 1984. Is that factually correct? I think it probably is. I mean, in those days, you couldn't really start rallying until you got your driving license. You know, there's none of this junior rally at 14 years old like we've got we've got now. But certainly, you know, as soon as I could get my driving license, I got involved in local club motorsport in Scotland. I'm a, I'm a farmer's boy from, from Persia um, originally. <clears throat> and I had a, you know, Mark II 1600 Sport Escort, as all the young farmers did in those days. And the, the difference with me was I, I road rallied it, I hill climbed it, I sprinted it, I auto tested it. I stuck a roll cage in it, and I and I did forest rallies at that time as well. But I, I think, I mean, it all kind of started for for me, you know, with that. I was also doing some navigating, some co-driving on road events as well. And you know, the big challenge is always is always cost in terms of of, of trying to um, you know carve a career as a as a rally driver as opposed to a co-driver, which is a slightly cheaper option. So here's a question for you. If in 2001, your championship year, we'd put all the all the top 10 co-drivers in that year's championship in the driver's seat, do you think you'd have had the fastest stage times? I know who would have told you he would have had the fastest stage <laughs> Um And I think you know who I mean. Um, but... Uh, so, funny story, and I think Richard did this for his amusement. Every car we drove, so every new car we had and every team we had, he made me drive it on a test. And and his, his rationale was, if then he was tired after the last stage of, a, of an evening, of a day, a day's rallying, and he said, Robert, could you just drive the car back? I want to have a kip in the passenger seat. I couldn't then say, oh, I don't know how to drive it. <laughs> so I remember when we went to Peugeot, so 2002, and we're in Sweden. And um, he said, come on, that was one of the first tests we did. He said, come on then, you've got to drive it. And this banter went back and forth for a couple of days. And eventually I said, okay, I'll drive it as long as you come with me. So, and he was a terrible passenger. <laughs> so we get we get in the car, we're going up the stage, like studded tires on snow and ice. And um, uh, we start going reasonably quickly. I mean, very slow by Richard's comparison. And I thought I was doing quite well. And uh, he leant across, he said, oh, well, we, well, we put the stage switch on. So I've, I've been in road mode <laughs> with, with, with this thing. So um, I think, yeah, a bit out of practice. But, you know, when I, I was actually, somebody sent me some results from the Granite City Rally um, recently. I can't remember, 86, 87 in about there. And I was doing it in my Escort and Colin McRae was doing it in his Sunbeam. 
So both 1.6 litre cars. And we both had a 19th fastest time on on the granite, which, you know, 1600 on what was a British national event at that time. I mean, that was, you know, Di Llewellyn and, you know, good national drivers. It wasn't just a a Scottish championship event. Do you think that was your high point? Was that your high point? It was my high point. I think it um, turned very quickly into a low point because it ended up in a ditch in Clash and Dareth Forest in the same event a couple of stages later. Um, So it it didn't transpire into a result. But, um, yeah, I was quite, quite proud to have done that. But I hasten to add that there was no way I was ever going to be a you know, a, a world champion in terms of driver. But, so, but this is the important point here. We can joke around it. Do you think that your ability to drive, having a bit more understanding the dynamics of the car and what the driver needs to do, made you a better co-driver? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And Richard always insisted that I go in every test because ultimately on the event, you know, a lot of the time you're out in the boondocks all over the place and there's just two of you in the car there's only two of you in the car on the stage. And he wanted somebody who had an understanding of the way the car worked, the way he worked, what we'd done on the test. Um, so, yeah, I think that that really was. But I also think the opposite. Richard did some co-driving in, in his younger day. So from that perspective, I think that was also, you know, he had an appreciation. When we came off a stage and... You know, I hadn't got my helmet off yet, and he's and he started. What time did I do, and what time did Colin do, and what time did Marcus do, and where do we go at this junction, and where's the weather crew for the next stage, and what's the tire choice we've got, and that damper we used on the test before. Do you think it would be good here? You know, and you get this overload of driver questioning. I think at least he understood from the other side what he was actually doing to me. It didn't necessarily <laughs> stop him. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So it, I suppose in some respects it's it's a bit like the golf professional golfer and caddy relationship, isn't it? In that respect, it's this idea of you're asking questions. Sometimes they are that they're sort of putative. You, you know that they're, they're they're rhetorical. You don't expect you, you almost want someone just to bounce off and not answer you. Other times you want them to answer, and the skill from your side is knowing which ones to answer, which ones not to. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm I'm sure that is you know that there are similarities in that. In that relationship, interestingly, I think there's there's also similarities um, with with bands and music. Strangely, I'm I'm yeah. really good mates with Neil Primrose, the drummer in the band Travis, who has done some driving, and we always talk about how the drummer and the co-driver they like they're the rhythm section, they're yeah. the steady ones, you know, keep keep it all going, make sure it all works. Make sure that the you know flamboyant lead man or driver doesn't get carried away and go off and do something that that they shouldn't do. So it's really interesting when you look at other sports and you know other you know performing arts and things, just how that dynamic of driver co-driver does play out in other things. So when was your first when was your first proper co-driving gig? Then when did it when when did you consider yourself to be professional? Um. Wasn't professional until I'd started with with Richard in in Subaru, okay. but um, it was certainly seriously co-driving starting in Scotland. So you know, Colin was sort of starting the same time I was. Um, 
Robbie Head, who was really good friend of Colin's, initially was servicing for Colin, then got his own car. He started. And for 80, let me think the years, 88, I, I co-drove with Robbie in Scottish Championship in a 1.3 Group A Vauxhall Nova, um, which was the, the car to have as a youngster at that point. So I did 88 Scottish Championship, 89 um, National Championship with, uh, with Robbie at that point. Um, 90 did it with a few different drivers. And then at the end of 90, um, did an event with Colin in Scotland that we won. We took a, a two-litre Pinto Mark II Escort on a very wet and muddy day in the Perthshire forests and uh, beat four-wheel drive cars, which was, uh, which was a lot of fun. And, um, I mean, that, that again, a bit of a funny story, but so my background's farming, and I remember where I was in a potato field, of all things, or lifting potatoes, and the phone goes, Rab, it's Colin. What are you doing this weekend? Fancy doing the hackle. <laughs> and, that, and, and that was it. You know, it was, yeah, why not? Did he have the did he have the reputation then for being a bit wayward or was that to well, come? he was he was British champion by that point yeah okay yeah so you know he'd, he'd um you know he'd, he'd he'd operated at the highest level but he was he's, he was great in the car I always remember in a stage called Drummond Hill which is a, a stage that strikes fear into a lot of people it's literally round the the edge of a, a very very steep hill above um, Loch Tay in, in Perthshire. And there's a road there that we all know is the, the diagonal road. So there's only several ways you can do it. You could go around for a bit, you go across the middle and back around the other side. And it's it's quite steep downhill. And we're in this two-litre pinto and we're coming down. It's pissing with rain. I'm just aware it's obviously a right-hand drive car. It was, it was Colin's Uncle Hugh's car. And there's actually a guy in Glasgow now who has it. Tom Fitzsimmon, and it's been all restored back to its its former glory. So it's actually better than it was when we used it. It's amazing. <laughs> but we're coming down this bit of stage, and I kind of glance across to my right, and I notice that McRae's loosening his belts. <laughs> now, we're in top gear, fourth gear. You know, we're probably doing, I don't know, 90. You know, it's a two-litre Pinto. Downhill, maybe 95. And he's loosening his belt, and then he's leaning across to my side of the car. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> and the, the wiper um, blade spring on the uh, right-hand side of the car was you know, obviously second-hand or, or not very new, and the wiper blade was coming off the screen. So as we were going down, he couldn't see anything out that side, so he's leaning across on the you know, right side of the car. Um so you know that was that was a, an experience, and then I did an event with his brother Alistair in the same car five or six weeks later, and then a couple of months after that, I did the first event with Richard in uh, the Wydean Rally, Forest of Dean. So the Wydean was Peugeot two hundred five. Yeah. So by that point, Richard had won the national section of the 205 or the Peugeot championship it was 205s and 309s 
Yeah. So there was an international section, national section. And I actually did um, an event with them the end of the end of um, 1990 when the two championships came together. And I was doing it with a guy called Steve Eggleson, and he, who was one of the front runners in the international series. Richard had won the national series, and this was the head-to-head, and uh, he beat us, which um, wasn't what we wanted. Uh, so got talking in the bar afterwards, realised that we had shared ambitions, um, talked a lot over the, the, the coming weeks, and I said, I'll do one rally with you to see how it goes. So we started the widening, and... The first stage was really snowy and we got to the end of it, I don't know, third, fourth fastest and uh, got our time at the end, driving down the road section. Wasn't really much said for a couple of minutes and then he said, how was that then? So, yeah, it's okay. And then we we drove to the next stage and it was said in a friendly way. So the next stage... Brendan Creeley's in front of us, who, you know, was, a, again, a, a good driver at that level. Um, we'd caught and passed him within three miles. We were going sideways through cattle grids and gates with snow on them in fourth gear. And we got to the end of the stage and absolutely blitzed everybody. So, again, we got our time and we drive away from the stop line. He turned around and goes, was that better then? And, and that was the only time I think we ever discussed pace in the car. You know, after that, it was um, it was all good. Uh, it must be tough for you to talk about him because you know you, you built, I'm sure, a significant bond with with Richard. But what what struck you about him in those early years? Because as a as a spectator, he came across as a very controlled young man. In fact, he was almost exactly he spoke the way I expected a rally driver not to speak. So he was a bit of an enigma to the to, to me as a fan. He wasn't someone you automatically thought, I want to be his fan from outside of the car. But I now understand that so well, because that must have really helped him be to make good decisions. Yeah, he, he was a really interesting guy. So I first met Richard um, competing against him, Audi Sport Rally 1990. And um, I was doing a one-off event with a, a driver from uh, from Cumbria. And that year, the Peugeot Challenge was split in two. So there was an international series and a national series. And on the Audi Sport Rally, they both came together. So that was the first time that Richard, doing the national series, had competed against the guys who were off doing Circuit of Ardennes and all these um, European events. And to interrupt, were these 205s or 309s? Uh, it was a mixture. You could have either. Okay. So um, so I was doing an event, the event with this guy, um, Steve Eggleson, and we finished second. Now, Steve was an international competitor. I had two or three weeks earlier uh, won the Hackle Rally in Scotland with Colin. So I suppose I had a bit of a, a reputation at, at that point. And the winner of the Persia Challenge category was one Richard Burns. So we got talking, you know, in the bar afterwards. And what was really clear to me very early on was that we had um, a shared ambition that was to do more than national or international events in the UK and have a party at the end of them. You know, we both really wanted to try to get as far in the sport as we could. 
And after a bit of discussion, um, I agreed to do the first round of the Peugeot Championship with them the next year, which was the Wydean Rally down in Forest of Dean. Um, My local event. Yeah, and uh, it was the... It was, I only agreed to do one event. So we, we pitched up on the widening and you'll remember the name of the stages, but there's, there's a stage that goes round the side of a hill and you go in yeah. and out the, the same road. I can't remember the name of it. And yeah, I know. Yeah. it was really, really icy and slippy. And we came out of that stage and I think we were, I don't know, third fastest or fifth fastest or something. And, um, it was quite quiet in the car as we kind of came down the road section. And eventually Richard turned to me and said, what do you reckon then? And I said, it's okay, I suppose. I said, um, but, you know, we're going to have to go a fair bit quicker if we're going to win this championship. So the next stage we went into and we were behind a, a guy, Brendan Creeley, who was was quite quick in, in Peugeot's. And um, within three miles, we'd caught and passed them. We were going through like gates and cattle grids on snow and ice sideways in fourth gear in this Peugeot. And um, we got to the end of the stage and crossed the finish line. We're just coasting down to the stop. And he turned to me laughing, going, was that better then? And, uh, and 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 that was it. You know, that's the only time that I ever had to have a, a chat with him about his driving. Um, you know, from then on, he was he was on it the whole time. We we blitzed the championship. I think thirteen round championship. We won it after seven. Um, and we were. I think there was very very few stages we were beaten on after that. I am just fascinated by the personality that that Richard was. And the way that, that this lovely rivalry sort of brewed up between him and Colin. Um, when, when do you think they first felt they were beginning to become rivals? Was it much later on or did it act, was, was Colin much more aware of Richard than the media was perhaps at that point? Yeah, I think so. We won the Persia Championship in 91 and then 92, we did the British National Championship in a Group N Legacy and and won that yep. first people to win. Was that, was that the LNX car or was that the year? Yeah, that after? was the first the first LNX car, so the Group N car. Um, yep. And towards that end, the end of that year, we were trying to work out what to do, and uh, we went to speak to ProDrive. We had some LNX money. Um, we spoke to a few other people as well, and we actually went to have a meeting with DR to tell him we couldn't raise the budget he needed. And uh, we're sitting in his office and he said, oh, just give me a couple of minutes. And he came back and he said, oh, I'm prepared to do the deal that the money you've got. So, you know, you've got to remember 91-92 Colin was in the Group A Pro Drive Legacy with Rothman's backing on British Championship. Yeah. And then all of a sudden um, we're in the car for 93. And then we're in the middle of doing the the recce for GB, and I get a call from David Williams, who was the uh, kind of manager, as it were, Richard's friend, who helped us all all the way along to see. Uh, Pro Driver just been on to say that Alistair will be in the sister car. So, you know, it was really <laughs> being lined up at this point. And obviously, in the end of 92, was uh, there was a competition, the Shell Scholarship. Uh, that all the young guys were were all in for this competition. Yes. And Richard was, 
he was probably favourite for a lot of people going into it, and Alistair won it. So there was a bit, there was more of an Alistair Richard rivalry at this point. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But obviously, I knew Colin from Scottish Championship days, and Colin was always about, um, you know, when we were doing uh, international events in '92 in the Group N car, and then and then the next year when Alistair was driving. So, um, yeah, I suppose, and I suppose at that point. You know, I mean, Richard was getting a lot of respect, but he hadn't yet proved himself beyond international events in the UK. So we then, off the back of winning the British Championship in 93, we went straight off the week after Rally GB to Thailand to do Asia Pacific round out there and then signed for Asia Pacific for 90. 495 but you the the bond between driver and co-driver anyone that's done any stage rallying um the only comparison i can say in, in my sort of broad motorsport experience is a spotter when you do oval racing this idea that you you have to it's a bit let go luke it's a bit star wars you have to literally let go of a part, a part of your brain that assesses based on vision and you have to put it in in the hands of someone else and there, there's there's not many other places in sport where this happens Ex- explain how you feel that relationship works because i think it is really interesting yeah it is very unique and and i think him and i often describe the role as doing everything that the driver needs so he can just concentrate on driving so it's getting between the stages it's worrying about the timing the amount of fuel that goes in the car you know when somebody has to go to the driver and say which tires do you want being able to give the information that would help that decision you know, ultimately it's the driver's decision um you know knowing where the weather crews are providing all the information so being a being a an office manager at 100 miles an hour in the car as well as the actual role of reading the pace notes. And reading the pace notes, I mean, particularly with Richard, we had 28 variants of corner. So from the very fastest to the very slowest. Now, some drivers have six or 10, um, but where that really showed is, you know, I'm I'm sure you'll remember the kind of late 90s uh, Rally GB first stage in, um, oh God, Name escapes me at the moment. Uh, in the forest, it was always foggy just as the as daylight was coming. And, you know, there's one year we took a minute and a half out of Colin in 14 miles. You know, cotton past Diddy Oriole in the stage. And and I remember there's one bit in the stage, um, it's quite a long straight uh, to a 90-degree corner. But maybe 150 metres before the corner, there's a lay-by on the right-hand side. And we're coming along, and we had developed, particularly in um, doing Asia-Pacific, where there's lots of long straights, a system where I would count down the straights. I'd say 1,000 metres, and then I'd say 500, 300, 200, 100, so counting down to the corner. Um, And we would do this in the fog as well. And all the drivers before have been coming along thinking the lay-by was the corner, driving into the lay-by, back out of the lay-by, onto the road, another 150 metres before the corner. And I was counting down, I think I'd counted down 500, 400, and he started breaking. I'm, no, 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 more, 200 more, keep going. And so at that point, Richard had to completely disregard the brake marks he was seeing on the road 
keep his foot down until I counted 200, you know, 150, and then repeated the corner, break, round the corner, and gone. Now, we could easily, I suppose, have accelerated off the side of a Welsh mountain at that point um, had I got, got it wrong. So there was a real bond there, you know, a real trust there. But the trust was both ways. He trusted me, but I also implicitly trusted him. That's interesting. Your last point there, because, you, you know, we, I've done a similar chat with Nicky Grist, who I suspect during his career had a slightly wilder ride um, at times. Could you have sat next to Colin in those, in, you know, for those years when he was wild? Or do you think that would have just been too much for you? Would you have just felt that was just putting yourself in danger? Or, or, or once you're signed up to be a co-driver, are you just of that mentality? Um, I think that's probably a bit of mentality. I certainly couldn't do it today. But, yeah. um, you know, I did a lot of testing with Colin in the early days. And I remember the first time we ever went to New Zealand, uh, I went out there, did three or four days testing with Colin, had a couple of days off while Possum tested, and then did uh, a couple of days with Richard. And we actually tested on the same road as Colin for one of the days. And, you know, Colin had knocked down fences and destroyed bankings and all sorts of things uh, when we tested there before. Um, the interesting thing was Richard, ultimately, you know, after 10 or 15 runs on the road, set a faster time than Colin's fastest time, but Colin had set his fastest time on the second run. You know, Colin was literally into the fences. With Richard, we were probably, you know, never any closer than a foot from the fence. So different styles and different approaches to actually get the same end game. And, you know, I think that's probably why, you know, Colin burst on the scene and and was this big um, uh, kind of, you know, driver that everybody wanted to follow and they really liked how flamboyant he was. Whereas Richard took a couple of seasons to build up. But then 99, 2000, 2001, we had more fastest times in the World Championship than any other driver did. But yet we had this reputation of being safe and not so spectacular. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was interesting, wasn't it? Because empirically, and co-drivers, in my experience, love numbers and stats. They seem to they seem to thrive on those. Empirically, what you say absolutely backed it up. But there was this sense that um, Colin threw it around. 
like a lunatic and when it stuck it worked um marcus was was uh was just the complete package and and also maybe tommy as well were considered to be the ones that could be heroically crazy but maybe not do as many shells as colin but richard and you seem to sort of look slightly out of that spotlight at that time is that a fair summary or not yeah i i think it is and you know when when i mean the the group a cars so the kind of 94 95 96 cars that were really really raw you know locked rear diffs i mean you know they're literally a a rear wheel drive car that the front wheels drove on as well and you had to throw them about quite a lot and and then the cars evolved into the world rally cars and by the time we're getting to late 90s early 2000s they were they were much more sophisticated you know you had control of the center diff whereas in in the early cars you didn't but what was happening there was they were suiting Collins flamboyant style less and less and less. Yeah. Whereas, you know, Richard was able to, you know, Richard was able to adapt to them and, and, and drive them and, and it was actually working. And then, you know, you see with Colin, when he went to Citroen and a car, you know, without getting too technical, you know, it was kind of about um, chassis balance and throttle balance. So, the, the Subarus we were driving had a, a rear-wheel drive chassis balance. Um, you know, you, you would understeer with them and you would balance that with a throttle to make them oversteer. Whereas the, the Citroëns and the Peugeot and, and these sort of cars had a front-wheel drive chassis balance, so i.e. it would oversteer naturally and you would drive it on the throttle to drive it straight. So it was, it was exactly the opposite philosophy and I think Richard pretty much could deal with that. Um, Loeb was absolutely at home with it. Colin really struggled with it. Yeah, that was was that sort of oh three, wasn't it? I can remember going up to or oh four. I can remember going up there and going up to Scotland for a media day, and you know, Loeb was was so much faster than Colin even on even yeah. on those days. And and the sense that Colin Colin still wanted the car to be an oversteer after the apex of the corner, whereas the others realised that actually from turn from turn to apex, you could deal with some oversteer, but after that, the thing needed to be straight and dragging you out of the corner as fast as possible. Yeah, whereas Richard was... Yeah, Richard was very good at rotating the car. So he would get the car rotated before the corner, and then most of the time, when you came to the apex, steering wheel straight, full throttle early. Um, and, and driving the car out of the corner. So Richard did always sideways bit on the way in. Yes, and, and that is and that, actually, that is the style t- even to this day. I remember interviewing Walter Raw many, many years ago. Walter's like one of my heroes. I mean, he, he's... Yeah. Um, and, and asking him who the two drivers were at that point, it would have been early 2000s, that, that he, had, he thought were the best. And they were, you know, not surprisingly, he, he identified Richard and, and Sebastian Loeb because... That was he felt was the style that he'd pioneered. You could argue that if you were going to trace the genealogy of that style of driving, Walter was the first person. Do you think that yeah. that was that yeah. that idea of not being Ari sideways? Vattenham was the McRae of his generation, and Walter was the was a much more like was much more like Richard. Yes, no, I would agree with that. Um, so let's fast forward to two thousand and one because I. I just I love the build up to that rally GB. I still think that that was. Maybe that was the pinnacle of rallying for me. Wales Rally GB 2001 was an extraordinary event, wasn't it? 
It was amazing. Um, there was lots of pressure. We'd come from pretty much nowhere in the championship. I mean, we'd had a disastrous year. We'd uh, managed to win in New Zealand, and that, and that was it. But we were in contentious, in contention, four-way fight. A lot of people forget that Tommy and Carlos also mathematically had a chance of, of winning there. The pressure was huge. Richard decided he wasn't doing any interviews at the shakedown and that, you know, set all the journalists into, into overdrive. Um, but also there was a, a contractual uh, wrangle going on in the background which, again, a lot of people kind of forget because we were contracted to go to Peugeot the next year. But if we won the championship, we had to stay at Subaru. Um, so that was uh, that was another facet that was going on in the background. So 2001, so, so uh, Richard's not giving any interviews. It's a four-way potential fight for this championship. Um, and as, you've, as we've touched already, rallying has sort of transcended its normal place in the sporting hierarchy. It's become the biggest thing. And I, and I think the, the point you made earlier, which I love, is that for a while, for a short period, I think it was bigger than Formula One. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I remember speaking to, to Damon, you know, about when he won the Formula One championship in 96. And then, you know, five years later, we're getting much more coverage than, than Damon did for Rally GB. Um, so Colin goes off like a scolded cat. First couple of stages, he's just on it. Doesn't appear to have, his, his throttle appears to be an on-off switch in a focus that we know probably hasn't got as much power as everyone else. So Lord knows, Nicky Gris is just holding on the white knuckles. What was your strategy for the event? Just wait for, for Colin to roll it into a ball? Well, it, it's easy to say no, but kind of, <laughs> yes. Um <laughs> Because Colin, Colin was quite easy to read. I mean, not because I knew him particularly, but you know, you always you saw Colin. He would try to get a whole load of time out of people on the first stage, and then he would maintain a gap through the rest of the event. And he'd done it to, to us a few times. I mean, he did it to us um, in all one in Argentina. We finished second term. You know, and I think the gap was marginally less than he'd managed to take on the first stage. And he was just a master of being really fast out of the block. So you had to raise your game and, and at least try and match him. And, and that was our plan to, you know, not let him get too far ahead because then it would have been game over. So we were quite happy to be a few seconds adrift on, on the first few stages, knowing that it wouldn't be his game plan and that he would then have to push harder in order to uh in order to to make a gap and we also and you know richard quite liked to play mind games as well although um McCree and and nicky always thought that they had the upper hand with it and i remember um richard was using a sports psychologist at the time and he specifically wanted the sports psychologist to be in a layby um, between two of the stages, but stood outside the car. So we were like parked up, speaking to the sports psychologist as Colin <laughs> drove past in the road section. 
and, and you know, I think we were speaking about the weather or, you know, the the bacon sandwich that he'd managed to get that morning on the way up there, whatever it was. It wasn't particularly sports psychology speak, but it was just this um this kind of trying to get one over in each other. And then we went into the next stage and you know, Colin and, and Nikki didn't get very far in there. Uh, we nearly went off. I mean, we we did slide backwards at a junction just half a mile after that, um, just because uh, you know we're distracted. And I remember saying to saying to Richard, "Can't concentrate." And he's like, "I am concentrating. Concentrate. I am concentrating." <laughs> and we're kind of winding each other up into this frenzy of not concentrating by trying to make each other concentrate. So, um, yeah, and, and, and then, you know, it was kind of role reversal of the year of the year before after that because we just had to finish third, I think it was. Um, but in typical fashion, it didn't go entirely to plan and we had various dramas. We had, a, we had a pinhole in the oil filter at one point. So every time we stopped in the road section, the car caught fire. Um, <laughs> so that was quite disconcerting. So yeah, we, we we had our dramas, but we managed to um, to get to you know the the kind of famous scene in Morgan Park and uh, and winning the championship. And how? So two questions around that. First of all, how does it feel trying to get down one stage, knowing that if you finish that stage, you won a world championship? Because that's the equivalent of trying to do sixty five on the motorway. Do you not worry that you're unsafe at low speed because you're not used to doing that? And mentally, the the level of nervousness must be unbearable. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, you start hearing things that you know don't actually exist. You start thinking the worst. You start getting intrusive thoughts. You know, and and I suppose that's it's kind of what you've preparing prepared yourself for over a long period of time. And and interestingly for me, the the Saturday night, so the 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 night before the last day. I just didn't sleep at all, but it wasn't being worried about, you know, making mistake or, or uh, anything about winning. It was more, if we won, would I still want to do it again? Was this the, you know, was this my Everest? Was this going to be, I'd achieved everything I wanted in the sport. Um, So it's amazing that the, you know, the thoughts that go through your head and then just the absolute relief um, at the end of the event. But um I remember my uh I, I was using a sports psychologist as well at the time. And it was a different one to Richard intentionally. And the guy I was using it was always saying that when it comes to concentrating, there's two types of people. There's those that have blinkers on the whole way through and then have a massive, you know, relief at the end. And there's those that can switch it on and off during the competition. And Richard could switch it on and off. Um uh, whereas for me, blinkers on, start of the recce, whole week, get to the end of the event. There's only one thing I want to do, and that's down as many beers as I can get hold of. <laughs> whereas we get to the end of the event and, you know, Richard wants to have a cup of tea. So it was quite funny at the end of the event, just the, you know, the different dynamics. And um, I'm really good friends with Dario Franchitti and Dario and Marino were, were there on the event. So they they were they were following us around and um, and Mick Doohan had been there with us as well for a couple of days during the event. 
But I remember we're on, uh, we're, we're finished the last stage and we're driving back to Cardiff. And the thing is, for Richard, at that point, he's won the World Championship. For me, being a co-driver, if I don't get back to Cardiff or if I'm late in getting back to Cardiff, potentially there's a penalty. So, you know, it's still all up in the air. So I'm on the phone to... Um, I'm on the phone to Fred Gallagher, who's the clerk of the course, going, Fred, there's traffic. You know, what are you going to do? Are you going to cancel the penalties? Don't worry, don't worry. It'll all be okay. Like, what happens at last control? Have we got to wait for our time? Or can we book in early? Or Don't worry, don't worry. So Fred was kind of um, sorting it all out. And then the next thing, um, we see there's a, a Impreza road car, like, comes tearing up behind us. And like almost touching our back bumper, and it's Dario and Marino. So <laughs> we we had a bit of a, a dice up the motorway, and I'm saying, Richard, Richard, if something happens here, we'll we'll lose championship. Just like be sensible, be sensible. But when you get Dario and Richard, you know, side by side in cars, then uh, who's never going to be that sensible? Yeah, you don't need the Frankiti brothers anywhere near a serious situation. I can confirm that. Yeah, exactly. Um, I I'm. Well, I'll never know what it's like to be a world champion. What's it like? What do you do? Did you just do? You, was it your Everest? Um, no, I, I wanted to do it again, and we very nearly did. Um, you know, we we had our our Peugeot plan, which unfortunately, you know, given Richard's illness, didn't uh, didn't materialise. But um, no, I I wanted to do it again. Do you? The Peugeot years, you know, they're, they're obviously tinged with immense sadness and frustration for you. Do you think, my only question to you as a rally fan is, do you think Richard was unfairly treated in that final year that there wasn't enough understanding or or maybe investigation into the fact that he might not have been physically in the right shape? Or do you think that's just the way of the sport, that in high-level sport, if you don't deliver, people are going to say things about you? I think a bit of both. I mean, in, in the first year with Peugeot, we um, should have won New Zealand and we uh, crashed out whilst 40 seconds in the lead. Um, we could have won Finland, but we took the jump at the Yellow House in Onampoya too fast and crushed the intercooler pipe. Um, we did win Argentina after Marcus got disqualified for legal service, and then we got disqualified for um, uh, um, flywheel that was too light. So, you know, there was there was kind of three opportunities to win in the first year, uh, so 02 at, uh, at Peugeot. Uh, and I think part of it was, and we sat down at the end of it, and we kind of said, look, we're not, it's really hard to beat Marcus in a straight fight in his car. Yeah. So how do we win the championship? And at that point, the, the point system had changed a bit. So it had gone from, used to be 10 points for a win, six for second, um, and then four, three, two, one. So top six got points. Then it went to 10, eight, six, five, four, three, two, one. So um, you, you got, you know, it was less of a points gap for finishing second than there had been previously. So at that point, Richard's like, well, I just need to finish second all the time. And, you know, and Marcus won't finish all the events. So, you know, a typical thinking driver, because yeah. ultimately you can only play the rules you're presented with. And um, so we went about, you know, doing what we did and we were really stacking up a lot of points. And it came to Finland. And that's the first time for me I was 
I was thinking, what on earth's going on here? Because we lost out in a straight fight with Petter to be second in Finland that year. And I can remember saying to Richard's trainer at the time, and you know, people were in about the summon wrong. That was just, you know, we just O2 or O3. O2 or 3 or 3 Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and I think, you know, that was the start perhaps of some of the effects of of Richard's condition starting to come through. And then we had uh get this right, Corsica, Spain, and GB. No, San Remo, Corsica, Spain were three events in four weeks. And and that just didn't go well for us. That was um San Remo, he was complaining that he couldn't make sense of the pace notes. I said, is it something I'm doing? He said, no, 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 you're doing exactly what you always do. It's, it's perfect. He said, I just can't make sense of them. Corsica, he was throwing up at the end of stages. Spain, we crashed out two or three stages to go, having not really been on the pace. But even although we would, we we still mathematically could win the championship in GB, and then obviously we didn't start GB. So, you know, had we... You know, had he not been ill, um, you know, ifs and ands. But, you know, I think we were definitely on for having a, a really good crack at the championship that year, which would have vindicated, you know, a lot of our approach. And I think the, the history books would would have told a very different story at that point. It's interesting because everyone assumes that that, that year, because it was so difficult, that you weren't mathematically in the shower. But to have, to have, to have gone through that and still be in with a shout shows just how consistent you guys were as a team in delivering points event on event. So yeah. few DNFs. I wonder whether, uh, being a statist, uh, being a, a co-driver, I'm sure you got the stats in your head, but as a crew, you must be one of the best non-DNFs out there, mustn't you? Yeah, our, our podium rate is very good. Um, so, you know, the rate, I think the only person who was better than us was Carlos. Carlos's rate of being on the podium was was amazing, Carlos Sainz. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, you know, in, in 2001, we won the championship winning one event and Richard kind of jokingly at that point said, I've been quite nice to do it with winning no events. Just because, <laughs> Which is the, exactly the opposite approach to a McRae, isn't it? He just wants yeah. to win events. And, and, you know, I always say, you know, Richard was about winning championships. Colin yeah. was about winning events. And somebody like Peter Solberg was about winning stages. You know, coming from his rallycross background, he couldn't he couldn't let a stage win go if there was half a sniff at it. So you know, very different three world champions, very different approaches to it. But um, certainly, yeah, Richard was was kind of he quite liked this idea of winning the championship without winning an event. So I'm sure we didn't particularly talk about it in all three, but I'm sure he was quite happy mid season that. You know, he was just racking up the points, doing the job. People were, you know, win or bust, bust or win. So people were kind of going up and down all the time in the points table. And we were just, you know, racking up the points and looking like, had we got, you know, a second, a, a third and a fourth or something in those three tarmac events, you know, arguably we could have gone to GB um, without having to win. Um, so the history books tell what happened that you you never actually turned up to compete in 2003 Rally GB um, uh, and um, uh, Rich was diagnosed with a brain tumour and um, you never call, you never you never co-drove for anyone else no I didn't um, 
I mean, I spent a lot of time with Richard. I spent four days a week with him for the two years that he was fighting his his brain cancer. Um, he he only wanted Zoe or myself there, so we we kind of shared the load on 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 that one. I had I had a couple of opportunities. I was involved a little bit in the management of Chris Atkinson, the Australian driver, who was at Subaru, and you know Subaru wanted or or asked about me co-driving with Chris. Um, and the problem with that for me, and <clears throat> this kind of can come across a bit wrong some some ways, but what they were offering as a fee was less than I paid for an insurance premium in 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 the last year I competed. So, you know, it's and and you know I I get that, you know, when you're starting off, you take a risk and you know you, you build up. And I think the other thing for me was I would have seen co-driving with Chris as being a you know five year, eight year plan, whatever it was, to be world champion. So it wasn't just a case of you know thinking I'll just sit in with them and then and then not uh, you know bail out after one year, but then um, in '07, I was Colin landed his helicopter in my garden one day, and um, we had a conversation about Colin was going to go back to Subaru, and he asked if I was interested in in going with them and co-driving. So that was, you know, being discussed. I hadn't said yes, I hadn't said no. And then, you know, obviously sadly he was killed in the helicopter crash. So um, we'll, we'll never know how that one goes. But um, yeah, I think there was possibly enough water under the bridge at that point to to think about doing something again. So you've ended up doing an awful lot of work with the FIA. You clearly are passionate about the sport and have a view on it. So before we talk about your specific roles in the FA, the things you've done, where do you think the sport is now? And where do you think rallying will be in five years' time? Because I think with the technology changes that are going on in the automotive space, rallying is actually well-placed to take advantage of them. My view is that the, the sport might need to be reshaped around that to accommodate the technology. What do you think? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think it's it's interesting times. And I think automotive hasn't yet decided where it's going, you know, in terms of, of, of powertrain and, and fuel. So I think it, I think the sport does have a, a good opportunity. I mean, motorsport has always been seen as a potential proving ground for automotive technology. Um, it seems to me that, you know, battery or, um, yeah, battery EV, as it were, isn't necessarily going to be the only solution going forward. Um, you know, sustainable fuels, synthetic fuels are now playing a, a bigger part. And I actually read something the other day saying that, you know, airplanes and large boats are not going to manage to run on batteries because of the fuel density um, issues. So th- there's going to have to be combustion engines of some description going forward. And if that's the case, why not have a, a more hybrid future for, for automotive? Because we're going to have to have sustainable and synthetic fuels for boats and and planes. So I think it's still very up in the air as to what the future is going to be. And I think motorsport in general gives a great opportunity to have a a breadth of solutions being used in different categories. 
Yeah, I, I think so too. I mean, I'm, I have to hedge my bets on what I do for a living, but I, I, history shows us that if you decide there is only one solution and, and you aim for that, then everyone will be disappointed. You know, there need to be multiple solutions and there are certain forms of transportation that simply cannot be electric powered. And and at the moment, it does feel like the subject's been so heavily politicised that if you do feel like you want to suggest an alternative, then you are slightly pilloried for being a luddite or or being a denier, and that's that's not the case. But rallying does seem to fit the electric mould at the moment. By that, I mean we have uh, a powertrain and sort of power storage solution that can be placed very low in the vehicle because so to get you a low cfg we're automatically four-wheel drive to give you the traction benefit but that does push you down a sort of rally cross route where you've got explosive high performance with upwards of a thousand horsepower it seems to me like they can pull they can pull the numbers out of nowhere now you can say well it's got yeah. two thousand horsepower great but that's rally cross as a sport. It's not rallying. So as someone who's just got his first entry into the Roger Albert Clark at the end of the year, which I cannot wait to do, where is is there a future for, you know, these longer events? Because they're getting shorter and shorter and shorter now. Or do you think that's just gone? Um, a couple of points. I mean, I think the, the first, just on the electric, I mean, I actually drive an electric car. And, and the reason I drive an electric car, I've got a, a Model 3 Tesla, is not necessarily to be uber green. It's because I like the technology. I've always been an early adopter. I like the technology. I love the performance. Um, and I like driving past schools with no tailpipe emission. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, and, and, and then, yes, there's a big environmental push at the moment. So you're kind of doing your, your bit. But interesting, so I live in Edinburgh. Um, and the farm where I grew up is is sixty miles north near Perth, near near Craigvinian uh, Forest um, of uh, you know famous rallying folklore. Um, so for me, the, the kind of the biggest journeys I would do are one hundred and twenty miles round trip or just round the town. So it works fine. But I did go down. I had a meeting down at ProDrive end of last year, and. I was surprised how easy it was to go to Banbury from Edinburgh and back. And I stopped twice for 10 minutes each on the way down. And, and it was completely effortless. That's because you're part of the Tesla infrastructure. Of course, if yeah. you try any other EV, it's much more difficult, which informs your choice. I totally get it. I mean, EVs, the, the, the problem with the EV thing for me, without wanting to digress too much, is that they are, it asks the vehicle you, you, the vehicle needs to offer you infinite infinite flexibility for it to be yeah. a personal form of transportation. If it doesn't do that, if you have to pre-plan what you're doing or alter your activity too much, you might as well, you know, use public transport or, to, or take yeah. a taxi. Um, it just ha- so happens that it works for you. For some people, it doesn't. I get that. For motorsport, I think it's just it's, the next five years are going to be fascinating because someone at the FIA, maybe with you involved, is going to have to make a big decision as to what rallying means over those next five years and at the moment everything points towards a shorter form more explosive type of motorsport but we already have rally cross so where does rallying fit that's the bit that interests yeah, me I, I think. think i think for me the, the the hybrid model that the sport is going towards now is an interesting one um personally i think we're we're certainly not early adopters in terms of the sport you know we 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 in my view, should have gone that route um, a bit sooner. So yep. being more proactive rather than reactive. It's, it seems a bit reactive at the moment. 
But yeah. as a solution, it works because service parks, towns, etc. you can go on electric power. And when you're out in the middle of the countryside, you can go on internal combustion power. Yeah. Now, the, the the one thing where for me that doesn't necessarily work, and again, it's maybe my heritage in sport, and you touched on it earlier, is you know, should rallying be um, short, sharp, or should it be endurance? Now, in my view, it should be endurance. You know, I've done a five-day safari rally. I've done four-day rally GBs. Um, for me, it wasn't necessarily about going absolutely flat out from start to finish on the rally. It was the the strategy and tactics around how you are the first car at the finish. And that's part of the sport that I personally really enjoyed. So for me to see, you know, comments that, that you see sometime in the press, or oh, the event was too rough, um, you know, we shouldn't be seeing modern rally cars not finishing events, I think is, you know, a bit rubbish, to be fair. Um, I think there should be an endurance element in it. Uh, and I think that one of the problems you have is that with the battery technology, it's it's kind of working against having longer events. So is that what you say? You know, if we're going to go down stadium sport, but we've already got a sport called rallycross, then it's fine. If we want to be endurance, then we maybe need to look at a different solution. And you know, interesting that they're talking about a hydrogen-powered Dakar entry in the next couple of years. And and I think this is where the you know the flexibility on on fuel sources and and powertrains is actually quite interesting and that different you know different things can use different different solutions yeah i agree um i mean the idea of clipping a tree with a something that's containing a liquid compressed to 5000 bar in the car does worry me slightly but you know i'm sure there's someone clever that will find a way of of harnessing that okay i think we need to wrap this up now because it, it's been fascinating i could go on for ages and ages and um yeah what a career look at the people look at look at who you've sat next to look at what you've done you must be you must look back almost with a sense of bewilderment and think i think what the position you've ended up in i mean i'm sure someone like you always expected to do well but that you know you're a world champion it's remarkable <laughs> I, I I told my parents so my first kind of um, introduction to the sport was I was going with my dad between two of the farms one Sunday afternoon when I was sort of ten years old, and we passed Craig Vinyan Forest and and the story goes that I you know said we need to stop and go and look and I refused to leave until the last car had gone, and then announced to the family a couple of months later that I was going to be a world rally champion. Now, little did I know at that point, but, you know, I, I do think, you know, focus on your dreams. Um, and it's amazing, you know, what what can happen. You know, the days with Richard were, were, were truly phenomenal. But, you know, I do look back to kind of starting out and in a, probably a three or four month period, I did a rally with Colin in Scotland and won it. I did a rally with Alistair in Scotland. We didn't win it. And I did a rally in Forest of Dean with Richard. Um, and we did win it in, in our category. So, you know, and it's almost that is, as looking back, is as good as some of the, you know, high-level stuff. Um, just, you know, the different experiences, the people you meet. And, 
you know, I think stopping was 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 difficult for me because I was so engrossed in trying to help Richard. I hadn't really realized that my career was over. So you've then got all that to deal with as well, plus losing, you know, best mate, colleague, um, et cetera. But the one thing that you realize, and I think this is true not just for rallying, but the whole of motorsport, is you miss the people. You miss the yeah. camaraderie. You miss working in a team. You miss, you know, that kind of common goal that uh, that everybody has. And, you know, it's a phenomenal sport. And I think regardless of whether people have aspirations to be a world champion or or even a driver, there's something for everybody in the sport. And I think that's partly what, what drives my enthusiasm now. I got a lot out of it, so I want to put something back. But also, I truly believe there's something for everybody in the sport. Yeah, and it, and it, it tends to push people towards excellence and overachieving, doesn't it? People surprise themselves what they can do within motorsport. It seems to be a consistent trend, which I love. So this car coming up for sale then the hook on the way in um a couple of things i i love i just love the story behind the car but i suppose leave the final words to you i i love the fact that it's got us talking about richard burns again who 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 will always remain one of the greatest drivers this country's produced but for obvious reasons of time probably hasn't been talked about so much recently but he's been talked about again which you must find heartwarming yeah and it's you know it's 20 years this year so um, it, it seems like yesterday and it seems like forever, both at the same time. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's great to see the car come up for, for sale. You know, it looks like it's going to uh, it's going to make a, a, a good price for the, for the current owner. It is very, very unique, you know, being in the condition it's in. And it has, it has a great backstory. You know, there's not many of these cars produced. I think this was chassis 11. I, I don't think if there was any beyond there of, um, you know, of this particular model because it only did um, nine world championship events. So, you know, it's not, it's not like one of the ones that was a model for years and years and years. So, you know, really unique in, in a number of different ways and, you know, particularly to have all the, you know, all the equipment on board and be in the exact condition that it rolled across the uh, across the the finish ramp on GB. I think maybe the the champagne has uh, dried and been washed off now, but that's probably the only thing that's not there from its authentic uh, condition when it when it won the event. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, very best of luck with all your FIA endeavours. Uh, Robert Reed um, from Collecting Cars that really was for me a fascinating chat wish I'd done it sooner actually I feel guilty now um, very best of luck uh, and um, there, have a look on the auction it, it's up there now that incredible 2000 uh, uh, Richard Burns Robert Reed WRC car which was for sale at the moment but um, uh, from us at Collecting Cars to you Robert Reed in Scotland uh, very best of luck and thank you very much thank you Collecting Cars, the safe, smart and simple way to buy and sell collectible cars. Follow us on Instagram at Collecting Cars and also CollectingCars.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.